Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Yesterday, I expressed my deep and personal appreciation for this historic church rooted in the heart of our great city. And since you can hear all these Lenten sermons on the Calvary website and YouTube, I will not repeat those words other than to say two things. How delighted I always am to be here. And another thing that is abundantly clear, with the phenomenal Calvary clergy team of Walters, McLean, and Carswell, the best is still yet to come. My feelings of gratitude today are magnified with the presence of a gifted rabbinic colleague, old friend, and tomorrow's speaker, Rabbi Judy Schindler, the Sklut Professor of Jewish Studies at Queen's University. Rabbi Schindler led Temple Israel's sister synagogue in Charlotte with distinction. And as my dear friend Scott just said, Rabbi Schindler will begin sharing her story with Reverend Meredith Day and me in this evening's Lent After Dark podcast. Two rabbis and a minister walk into a bar and end up at Calvary. Or as one good friend said, two rabbis and a minister walked into Calvary and ended up at a bar. My dear friends, um, in the Jewish faith tradition, one is encouraged to recite 100 blessings of praise or thanksgiving every day. The formula is an open-ended sentence, Baruch Ata Adonai, thank you God, and then you fill in the blank. Thank you God that I woke up this morning. Thank you God for this morning's coffee. Thank you, God, for the roof over my head. Thank you, God, for Calvary's organist, Kristen Lynch, playing a Hanukkah song in March. That's only four down, 96 to go, today alone. This spiritual practice is essentially a behavior modification exercise because if you are always looking out for what you have, rather than what's missing. If you are constantly on the lookout for life's daily miracles and blessings, then it is more likely that you will become a happier person. The Jewish custom of offering benedictions of thanksgiving extends to when you learn a great teaching or something impactful from any teacher and the Hebrew formula for that particular blessing goes like this. Which means, thank you God, sovereign of the universe, for imparting from your divine wisdom that person's wisdom to a flesh and blood human being like me. Just weeks ago, 
an unparalleled leader, elder statesman in higher education, an important influence on my own life passed away at the age of 93. The eminent scholar Frank H.T. Rhodes was president emeritus of Cornell University. At the time of his retirement in the 1990s, Frank Rhodes was the longest serving president in the Ivy League. He led a major research university for 20 years, a tenure nearly unheard of today. His scholarly field was geology and the history of science. And he never stopped teaching and lecturing before, during, and after his tenure as president. Back in the 80s, he and Carl Sagan turned me on to more than the cosmos. They reminded me and my classmates of our collective responsibility to be responsible stewards of the planet long before our current climate emergency. Shortly after my 1984 graduation, I was back on campus and President Rhodes, who was born in England and a member of the Anglican Church, heard that this Jewish boy, who had just completed the Kennedy School of Government, was not going to go into government, but was going to go to rabbinical school. Frank, as he liked to be called, even though I still called him President Rhodes, he said one of several things which compelled me to recite that ancient Hebrew blessing for a wise teacher. Sensing my ambivalence in my 20s about a career in government, politics, public policy, he calmly and reassuringly said, Micah, no matter who you are or what you choose to pursue, the successful life is ultimately composed of three parts, something purposeful to do, someone to love, and something positive to hope for. In these recent weeks since Frank's death, I found myself recalling his wisdom, and I journaled my personal Jewish responses to his universal prescription for a successful life, something to do, someone to love, something to hope for. My hope on this second day with you is that what I share might stimulate your own answers, no matter what religious path you may follow. Something purposeful to do. So much of Judaism turns on this phrase. Whenever I teach my faith tradition, I always emphasize that one of the cardinal principles for understanding Judaism is the notion that you are what you do, not what you profess to believe. The early rabbis in the ancient Midrash even imagined God saying, and I quote, would that my children, this is God talking, would that my children not believe in me, but only do what is right. Certainly, Judaism, the religion of Jesus, and the mother faith of Christianity and Islam, initiated the idea of one God for all humanity. But the leap of faith Judaism makes is that this one God cares most about one thing, 
the way we treat each other. Put differently, in Jewish belief and thought, the proof of one's faith is one's actions. This explains why all people, according to Judaism, who strive for goodness despite our failings in this lifetime, will be embraced by God wherever we go from here. Ask a Jewish person what the Hebrew word for faith is, and it may take a while to get an answer. Ask that same person what the Hebrew word for a sacred deed is. And even those who cannot read a letter of the Hebrew alphabet will reply, mitzvah. A mitzvah is that purposeful something a Jew does in response to the gift of living. Mitzvahs are more than good deeds or commandments. A mitzvah is an opportunity for holiness. Learning, for instance, is a mitzvah. So is lighting Hanukkah candles. But the goal is always the same. If it's a ritual or study, the goal in living a life of mitzvah is the refinement of human beings. Rituals are beautiful, but they are never ends in themselves. The rituals and prayers offered in this magnificent church do not end with the walls around us, God forbid. Prayer and ritual must lead to action. Taking communion as a Christian or eating unleavened bread during Passover as a Jew will not make a difference until and unless these rituals lead that Christian or Jew to do, to act, and become God's helping hands in an increasingly selfish and self-serving world. The early rabbis echoed purposefulness of prayer when they declared, he who rises from prayer a better person, his prayer is answered. Ditto for she who rises from prayer a better person, her prayer is answered. So my response to President Rhodes is something to do, is to live a life of mitzvah as best I can. Someone to love. We all need someone to love. The need for others is as natural and essential to our emotional and physical well-being as our need for waffles, food, and shelter. And yet, while we may all readily acknowledge the importance of having someone to love, how hard it is sometimes to achieve that goal. Breakdowns occur even in our closest relationships. Often it is the result of miscommunication as reflected in this story about the guy who goes to a lawyer and says he wants a divorce. The lawyer asks, do you have any ground? The guy answers, about half an acre. The lawyer answers, no, that's not what I meant. Do you have a grudge? He says, no, we have a carport. By now, the lawyer has really had it. So the lawyer says to him, will you please tell me exactly why you want a divorce? And the guy answers, because she doesn't understand me. Before we can ever understand 
the exceptional loves in our lives, we must first take a closer look at the one we rarely examine ourselves. That's what this Lenten season seems to be for. Ditto for the full month of self-accounting, reflection, repentance every fall in the Jewish tradition known as the High Holidays. We face our own flaws and commit to listening better to those we claim to love. If we truly want someone to love, we must be willing to share that person's sorrows no less than that person's pleasures and joys. We must also become more conscious of our ability to injure those we claim to love with the things we say or don't say, the things we hear, or in the case of the guy in the joke, the things we fail to hear. As important as it is to have something purposeful to do, it's no fun to live life without someone to share it with, whether that someone is a spouse, a friend, a sibling, child, or all of the above. These reflective seasons in our faith traditions are the time to hit the pause button and pay closer attention to our love relationships, the way we miscommunicate, the way we avoid saying what is in the innermost recesses of our hearts. And thirdly, what would life be like without something to hope for? One of the monikers of the Jewish people is that we are called asirei tikva, prisoners of hope. It is no accident that in 1948, only three years after the murder of one out of every three Jews in the world by the Nazis, the state of Israel chose as its national anthem title, Hatikva, which literally means the hope. In the face of centuries of persecution, dislocation, in spite of what others took away from the Jewish people, Jews never abandoned the age-old hope and belief in the goodness of God and the potential goodness of people despite the inhumanity they witnessed and experienced. An unexpected place where I learned a great deal of hope was when I was shadowing as a student chaplain at Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles over 30 years ago. While there, in someone's room, I picked up this wise maxim. 40% of the things I worry about never happen. 30% are beyond my control. 12% may happen if I continue to worry. And 10% is none of my business in the first place. This leaves 8%. So I will face the remaining 8% as courageously and with as much hope as I can. The patient who taught me this and others I have literally held as they died. They've taught me to never lose hope and to maintain hope no matter what. But lately, it's been hard in Jewish circles to maintain hope. This year has been the darkest in a generation because of hundreds of anti-Semitic incidents in Europe and the United States, including only a few months ago in the New York area with three Jews killed, five stabbed, one unlikely to awaken from a coma. You don't have to be a therapist to notice, by the way, the deep generational trauma in the Jewish community I serve and love. While we are way past the medieval period where Jews have lived, 
and suffered and died. From Poland to Iraq, even in recent times, Jewish history is filled with stories of being massacred by people we live beside, even in the modern period. How to maintain hope amidst the rise of anti-Semitism in America. First, we have to understand the factors driving the rise in anti-Semitism. And I believe the great writer, Carly Pildes, summarizes it well. And I quote her, anti-Semitism isn't a black problem or a white problem, nor is it a left or a right problem. It's a societal problem that needs broad-based solutions. She's right, we're living in a time of terrible political instability. We're living in a time of the rapid spreading and mainstreaming of conspiracy theories. I can't, couldn't believe that 50%, 50% of Americans believe at least one conspiracy theory right now. And we are also living in a time of economic frustration and anxiety a time when the gap between rich and poor is a chasm, and the American middle class is struggling to hold on. At this very moment in time, 40% of Americans, 40% could not handle a $400 emergency expense. Americans are losing hope in the American dream, and this is fertile ground for anti-Semitism. Any conspiracy theory to grow and take hold. Put differently, anti-Semitism is a virus. It's an opportunistic infection that attacks weak bodies, including the weakening of American democracy. It flourishes during times of instability, hopelessness, by suggesting that the instability is due to a quiet and invisible conspiracy of Jews. Because of anti-Semitism's centrality, to violent white nationalism and its destructive effect on democracy. Anti-Semitism is a threat to all people, Jewish or not. When you study history, you quickly discover how anti-Semitism thrives under conditions of hopelessness and discontent. It paints an imagined picture of Jews, whether it's the Jewish people as a whole, a nefarious Jewish wealthy person, a shadowy cabal, or the Jewish state of Israel as holding unique power, superpower, able to influence the world more than normal people can. It thrives because it critiques power by blaming everything on a small and invisible group of powerful Jews. And what the most incisive writers on anti-Semitism point out is that anti-Semitism doesn't just come from hatred or ignorance. It's a predictable effect in every period of structural inequality and hopelessness since the term was coined by Wilhelm Marr in Germany. Born in 1819, Marr entered politics as a democratic revolutionary who favored the emancipation of all groups, including Jews. But when he became embittered about the failure of the 1848 German Revolution, the hopelessness, and about his own rapidly declining political fortune, he turned his venom against the Jews. And in 1879, he founded the League of Anti-Semites, the first German organization committed specifically to combating the alleged threat to Germany posed by the Jews. 
and he advocated the forced removal of Jews from Germany. What most people don't know is that toward the end of his life, he renounced anti-Semitism, arguing that the social upheaval and hopelessness in Germany was not the Jews' fault, it was a result of the industrial revolution and conflict between political movements. And he openly, before he died, requested the Jews' pardon for having erred and putting the blame on the Jews before his death in 1904. He made up the word anti-Semitism. He asked, but it was too late. Everyone now knows what it is. And in times of hopelessness, it thrives. Here we are over a century later with hate crimes still rising across America and not just for Jews. Back to Carly Pildes before I close. I love her prescription on where we go from here in restoring hope. Only if we fight hatred of all kinds together will we all be stronger. Instead of throwing up our hands and saying that we need to pick one community's safety over another's, we can refuse to. We can decide that everyone must be safe and feel safe. In other words, in order to defeat anti-Semitism in America, we must fight the conditions that allow it to thrive. Whereas the late, great social justice leader from the movement which Rabbi Schiller and I were raised and her father led, Al Vorspan said, and I quote, until we deal with the misery of so many Americans invisible to us, until we deal with the terrible plight of so many, until we deal with the social problems plaguing every American city, there will not only be anti-Semitism, there will be every other kind of prejudice and every other kind of anti-social fury. What gives me hope are my childhood heroes who humanized the inhumane and unjust world in which they lived, like my tennis idol, Arthur Ashe, the black tennis champion player from Richmond, the intellectual and statesman, Arthur Ashe, who rose above the hate all around him. Amazingly, he never lost hope. Even as he lay dying from the HIV he contracted from a blood transfusion received during a routine heart bypass surgery. He never grew bitter. He never lost hope. He never internalized the racism around him. He transcended it by laying the groundwork for a better world for his daughter, Camera, and for other children to enjoy when he died. We learned from him, and I hope you'll fill in the blank your own way, that having something to hope for, it's not simply pie in the sky or even a matter of finding cures back then because Ash knew he would die or shaping outcomes. Having something positive to hope for is the beginning of all participation in good things, including life itself. Let me sum it up in one sentence from the Talmud. As long as there is life, there is hope. So I'm grateful to my teacher, Professor President Rhodes, for clarifying the three components of a successful life. Something purposeful to do, 
a life of sacred service, a life of mitzvah, someone to love honestly and openly, and something still to hope for despite what's going on, something to hope for a world of greater equity and humanity, even when all hope seems lost. My prayer on this day, friends, is that each of you succeeds in keeping alive your deepest loves and your deepest hopes throughout the year ahead. The God of compassion, action, love, and hope we all believe in certainly wants nothing less for any of us. So may it be for you and me. And let us all say, Amen. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.